Hey garden nerds, I have two big announcements before we get to today's episode. Both are coming in early 2022. First, over the holidays, I'll be developing and recording a brand new online course all about pest control. It will walk you through my step-by-step process for identifying, diagnosing, and finding solutions to your biggest pest problems. We'll start sharing more details about this exciting new course in mid-January, so stay tuned. Second, and this is kind of a big one, I wrote a novel, and it's called Garden Variety, and it's being published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins, in February 2022. It was set for publication in March, but they moved it up to February, so you get it earlier. Here's a little bit about it. It's set in a community garden in Los Angeles and explores what happens when you put people of different stripes together in tight quarters. It's already available for pre-order anywhere books are sold, so search Garden Variety and my name, Christy Wilhelmi, that's W-I-L-H-E-L-M-I, on your favorite bookseller's website. More details to follow for upcoming events and book signings. Now, on with the show. It's the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast, where we spend time chatting with expert gardening guests, and we ask for their favorite tip. I'm Christy Wilhelmi. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're diving into the topic of land races with Joseph Lofthouse. He's the author of Land Race Gardening, Food Security Through Biodiversity and Promiscuous Pollination. Joseph learned seed keeping from his father and grandfather on a sixth generation family farm. He worked for several years growing market vegetables before transitioning to land race development and seed keeping. I'm really excited to talk with you today, Joseph. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you, Christy. Glad to be here. Now, I know there are a number of listeners who are probably asking, what is a land race? But before we get to that, let's set the scene. You're in Utah, correct? Yes, I'm high up in the mountains in northern Utah, so we have super cold nights and a really short growing season, and also we have clay limestone soil, and so those are conditions that are radically different than most of the rest of the country, and so I had to develop my own ways of doing things in order to cope with the climate and the growing conditions. And your hardiness zone is what? So we're between a four and a five. Ooh, that is a short growing season. Yeah, and I have about 90 frost-free days. Wow. So some years it might be as short as 85 and other years as long as 100, but in the 90 days more or less. And so I imagine you are developing varieties that are going to come to maturity quite quickly. Is that right? Yes, they have, they have to mature super quickly. Um, one thing I've noticed about my varieties when I send them to other places is that that short maturity can also be beneficial in, in super long seasons because then they mature before the, you know, the fall rains or they mature before the, the thunderstorms come and destroy everything or the insects or whatever. Right. That makes sense. And, and I imagine it works great for people who are trying to get the, I, I'm, I'm thinking of French intensive gardeners who are trying to get, you know, nine crops out of the same square foot in the same season. So that kind of works for them too. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk about land race. The word 
it's something I understand and I know what it is, but I've never really been able to define it or describe it very well to other people. Can you, I, of course you can, will you <laughs> define what a land race is? So my definition of land race is a crop that is genetically diverse and promiscuously pollinating so that it can undergo survival of the fittest adaptation to current conditions in its current growing location. That is elaborate. Now, I love that you use the word promiscuously pollinated because that really implies what's happening when right. plants are cross-pollinating. Uh, let's dive into that a little bit more. What are your techniques for promiscuous pollination? <laughs> How do you encourage that, I should say? So first of all, I would like to describe why I chose the term promiscuous pollination. Sure. Because in the seed industry, we have a term that's called open pollinated. And to the mind and the heart, open pollination implies, oh, we don't know who's the daddy. But <laughs> in reality, every trick that is known to science is used to keep those crops from actually cross-pollinating. And so I chose to use the word promiscuous pollination because it implies that we want them to be cross-pollinating. Mm -hmm. Because if they're cross-pollinating, they're rearranging their genetics and they're able to change to fit local current conditions. So in my mind, the way I've always described it, or at least understood it, is that say we're talking about the Brassicaceae family and you have, you know, all of those were developed from one original mother plant. Uh, right. and, and when people plant a lot of, like, for example, I grew black magic kale and it lasted three years and it kept, you know, it, eventually it would kind of go to seed and I saved the seeds from it. And I'm growing those out this year. And of course, they're nothing like <laughs> the original. Uh, but I'm kind of thinking like, if I just keep planting them, those seeds and keep saving them and growing them out, maybe I'll end up with a resilient variety that's kind of cool. Um, is that what land race, is that what you do to create a land race on your own? Exactly. The, the number one thing about land race gardening is you need to be saving your own seeds. And if you are saving your own seeds, those are becoming locally adapted. As much as we try to keep them pure and clean and uncontaminated, they are becoming locally adapted. And if we grow, say, two or three varieties of kale and they're crossing with each other, then that spins the genetic lottery wheel quicker so they can adapt to local conditions faster. And this is, of course, helpful when it comes to climate change, because in, in our changing climate, adaptation is one of the most important qualities about a seed. So how do land races solve this problem? So when I put together a land race, I select varieties from many different locations. So I'll select them from places that are colder than where I grow, from places that are hotter than where I grow, from places with different soils than where I grow. and so. Then they come to my place and they have all this genetic diversity from all over the place. And because I'm allowing promiscuous pollination, that genetic diversity doesn't disappear quickly. I mean, some of it disappears because stuff like stuff from really humid climates isn't important to me. Mm -hmm. And so some of those genes will disappear, but they'll also most some of them will stay around for long periods. 
because of the promiscuous pollination. So if, if my climate shifts towards wetter weather, then there'll be low quantity genes that can reassert themselves and become more bold in the population or more prominent. So there's just a lot for the plants to work with if you're having a biodiverse crop to start with. I think people don't often realize that seeds are grown in certain climates and hardiness zones. And while catalogs and seeds are shipped across the country, the seeds aren't necessarily ideal for different climates. So what you're doing makes a huge difference. You talk about this, um, you know, this, the importance of locally adapted seed. Uh, what do you see in the differences? Or I should say, what differences do you see in your own garden and your own seeds versus fresh out of the packet seeds you buy from other parts of the of the country. So what, one thing that's really obvious here in my climate is we're super arid. We have 10% uh, humidity oftentimes in the day and my neighbors will whine that my garden grows great with once a week irrigation and they can't keep their garden green with everyday irrigation. Mm -hmm. And so I asked them where they get their seed and they say, oh, we got it from Oregon, this beautiful <laughs> organic seed company. And I'm like, wet, yeah. cold, damp, overcast. It's no wonder the seeds don't thrive here because they're used to growing in, in a super wet environment. So I see that with all kinds of things like crops that are typically grown, say, with pesticides and herbicides as part of their routine growing method for decades. And then they get to a home garden where people don't want to poison their crops. Mm -hmm. And then they fail because the conditions aren't right for them. And so I see that all the time with seeds that are bought from, I call them unvetted seeds. You don't know where they come from or what conditions they were grown under. Mm -hmm. So if you can find seeds that are grown by a local company, a local neighbor, they're usually much stronger seeds than what you can buy commercially. Right. And that's where I want, I always want to plug seed libraries because they often will have generations of saved seeds locally adapted in those libraries. So it's always a good idea to join your local seed library and support it and contribute your seeds to it. That's always fun. Yeah, well, one thing I hear people whining about seed libraries is what if the seed is contaminated? Oh, God. And I'm like, how beautiful. Because <laughs> then it's locally adapted. Right, right. Yeah, we need to, I guess, loosen our grasp on um, purity a little bit, don't we? Well, uh, an heirloom is a variety that has been inbred for 50 years. And so 50 years ago, it was a wonderful variety for a faraway farm and long ago. You know, and, as, and conditions have changed since then and they've changed as it moves from one location to the other. Yeah. And so I think of heirlooms as a great uh, source of diversity, but I want the diversity to be used currently and to, to combine those several different diverse heirlooms together is, is my favorite way of doing things. So you bring me to my next question, which is what are some of the land races you've developed or are currently working on? So one of them that I've been working on is, is corn. Ooh. 
And, and listeners and listeners, Joseph is holding up four beautiful, really diverse looking corn uh, samples uh, in, in, this, uh, in this talk right now. So I'm gonna post a picture of this in the blog post so you can take a look at it. So let's talk about this corn, tell me more. So about, oh, 50 years ago, seed explorers went to South America and they brought back the corn races from down there. Mm-hmm. And they adapted them in Hawaii to the long day growing season that I have here. Mm-hmm. And so I, I took those corns and combined those South American corns and crossed them with the North American corns that I've been growing to, to sort of be a family reunion for all of the different races of corn that went all over the world. Uh-huh. And so then I'm using that corn as the population to do local breeding. And I'm reselecting out of that sweet corns and flower corns and flint corns, um, the popcorn. And so that's been a a joyful experience to find traits in corn that from South America that I hadn't seen in the North American corns. Now, can I ask you a little, if you're willing to share, uh, and I know, I'm sure this is in your book as well, uh, but some of the specifics of how you do this because i know breeders will take the tassels off of corn and hand pollinate or they'll you know they'll be more deliberate about how they want pollen to cross how are you what does it look like to promote promiscuous pollination in a land race what is that physically like what are your what are your tasks what do you do so there's two different kinds of crops and in, in general terms, there's the crops that are mostly the inbreeders, and there's the crops that are the mostly the outcrossers. Mm-hmm. And for example, corn is a mostly outcrossing crop. And when I made that cross between the North American corns and the South American corns, I did detassel one of, one of the varieties so that I was ensured that there was cross-pollination. But corn would have done that cross-pollination anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, with things like beans that are, say, 99% inbreeding, what I do is I plant the beans all jumbled up together. Oh. So that the bean flowers will be, say, an inch away from the flowers of a different bean, which increases the odds of them crossing a little bit. And then I just pay attention to find the naturally occurring hybrids. And I, I plant those by themselves so that they have, they're a higher percentage of the population. Mm, okay, That's, thank you for explaining that. Cause I've always wondered how self-pollinating crops can be adapted. Cause they, I mean, you know, outside of saving the seed and growing it out every year but like, how do you cross those? If they're self-pollinating, it's kind of hard. Yeah. Well. Yeah, it's just that 1% chance or that that 5% chance. Uh, You know what, it it varies from species to species, but but it's just a matter of paying attention if you you want the process to go quicker. Mm -hmm. Because they will be adapting if you're just growing seeds out, they'll be crossing some small percentage. And the, the hybrids will tend to be a little more vigorous than the parents were or a lot more vigorous. And so, so they will adapt all by themselves, even if you don't 
focus on on that local adaptation mm -hmm. on the crossing. And have you worked on any brassica plants at all? So I I have a crop of turnips that has gone feral in my garden. <laughs> what does that and look like? <laughs> it's really beautiful because I'll have turnips just growing. And if they're growing in a row, I leave them and they go to seed and 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 so it's lovely. <laughs> and do you end up eating, do you find that like, you know, the flavor changes season after season, or do you find the leaves become more palatable after a while? Or what do you think? So I haven't been selecting at all on oh. that turnip crop for for anything, basically. Oh, you're just letting it go to seed and re reseeding itself out in the field. Yeah. Well, the the one thing that I do select for is in the spring. I go through the field and I collect the two or the roots that are are a nice size and a nice shape, and I plant those to go to seed. Mm. So I am I am selecting against say any that are becoming woody or or stuff like that. Got it. Okay. I have grown a bean called the beefy resilient Grex bean. Beefy yeah. resilient Grex bean. Have you heard of this? I, I've grown that. You have, and and so it's supposed to taste like steak, which as a vegetarian, I can say it probably doesn't, but I mean, I don't, it doesn't taste like a bean, but it's, you know, got a meaty nature to it. Um, Grex, G-R-E-X, is another term that people don't often hear. Can you define what makes a Grex crop different from a land race, if at all? So, so my definition of a Grex is a bunch of different varieties that are growing together. Okay. And after some years of growing together and they become locally adapted, then I would call that a land race. Okay. But, but a, a Grex to me would be like the beginning stages of, of turning something into a land race. I love that. That's somehow poetic. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> that just strikes me as poetic. Um, and do you have any advice for anyone trying to create their own land races? So my advice is plant two or three varieties that you love together, allow them to cross pollinate, save the seeds from them. And do that year after year, selecting for what you love. Um, it might be the flavor, it might be the shape, it might be the color, whatever but just love your land races. Let them be part of you, part of your community. That's a great idea. I feel like I have, I must have that going on in my backyard because every year uh, I toss out seeds from the cilantro that has volunteered. And so it's just every single fall and spring, I get a new crop of each of those. And uh, and I just, you know, I, I end up saving probably a quart-sized jar of seeds to give to the seed library, but I end up tossing some of the seeds out for the next time it rains. And um, that's the only way I can keep cilantro growing <laughs> kind of, you know, in succession. But right. I, I know it's it's got to be adapted by now. I've been doing this for since 2008. So it's probably a really nice, resilient cilantro variety by now. Yeah. So my estimation is that about 85% of well about 80% of selection is actually happening by the ecosystem mm -hmm. 
and it, it has nothing to do with me. It's just the ecosystem and the plants doing what they do. Right. And then I, with that 20%, I have my little bit of selection ability. Yeah, it, it, you know, I always say nature always wins, um, uh -huh. which is <laughs> especially true, I guess, when it comes to land races. And you want that. You want nature right. to, to have a, a say in the, the crops you're selecting for and growing. Well, it is tip time. I want to ask if you have a favorite tip you'd like to share with the Garden Nerd audience. So I would like to share my daddy's wisdom about gardening. All right. And he, he says that to be a wonderful gardener, that you should take a bucket and a hoe out to the garden every single day. And you might use the bucket as a seat and the hoe as a cane. But the idea is to get out into the garden. If you have your tools with you, you might weed something or you might harvest something and put it in the bucket. But if the only thing you do is walk into the garden every single day, you'll be a better gardener. Your plants will love you more. They'll produce better for you. That's such a great story and great advice. And, and so, so true. I find that there are a number of gardeners who really don't get out in the garden as often as I would like them to do. <laughs> and really it is about, I always say it's like these two fingers, your, your thumb and your forefinger, those are your best tools in the garden. <laughs> and really, I mean, like the best weeding tool and the best growing tool and the best uh, observation tool are those two fingers. Okay. And so get out, get out there. That's a great tip. Thank you so much, Joseph, for sharing that tip. And thanks for being a guest on the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Christy. How do people find you? So I have an author website, which is lofthouse.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And what are, you, what are your handles on Instagram and Facebook? I totally don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I will find it and I will put it in the notes for this, uh, this podcast listeners. So you can go to gardennerd.com and find those links. You'll also find the link to Joseph's website on gardennerd.com this week. And we'll share with you how you can find his books and of course, those social media feeds. That's it for this week. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Visit us for tons of free gardening information at gardennerd.com. Show your support for this podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber. And you'll find us on Instagram and Twitter under gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and of course, our Garden Nerd YouTube channel. Happy gardening!